0: Okay. Good evening, and very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, my name Jeff Mulger from Leicester, and I'm going to be sort of air traffic control for the next uh, sixty minutes or so. Um, as we talk about the long, the long run future, I'm saying to Martin, it feels slightly ironic having this conversation when we don't mm. know if Britain will be a member of the European Union in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a slightly remarkable situation. But maybe it's quite therapeutic against <laughs> such a backdrop to be. Uh, looking a bit further ahead. And we are, of course, delighted to have Martin here. Uh, He is not only a former astronomer royal, president of the Royal Society, master of Trinity College, but even more important than those, a former board member of NESTA. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So a crucial role in our our earlier history. And what's going to happen is Martin will talk for 15, 20 minutes about the main um, themes of his book uh, on the future, Uh, We'll then have a bit of a conversation, but then open it up for your comments, questions, strong disagreements, or um, crystal ball gazing of your own, which I hope is what you expected to happen. And we will finish very promptly at 7 o'clock. So Martin, over to you.
1: Right. Thank you very much, Jeff, for inviting me. Um, I've written this book, and its theme is that our Earth's existed for 45 million centuries, but this century is special. It's the first when human actions can determine the fate of the entire planet. I'll discuss ways in which this could happen. Astronomers are sometimes confused with astrologers. And as a astronomer royal, I'm sometimes asked, do you do the Queen's horoscopes? <laughs> and uh, when well, she's never asked me, uh, I respond that I'm only a scientist, and scientists are rotten forecasters, almost as bad as economists, not quite. Mm-hmm. But there are two things we can predict even with a cloudy crystal ball. I'll start with them. The world's getting more crowded, and it's getting warmer. 50 years ago, the world population was 3.5 billion. It's now 7.7. And despite forebodings, uh, the food production has kept pace with that doubling. Famines still occur, but they're caused by maldistribution or conflict, not overall scarcity. And the population will go up to 9 billion by mid-century. That's fairly predictable because most people are now young. And to feed them will require further improved agriculture and maybe dietary innovations, converting insects, highly nutritious and rich in protein, into palatable food and artificial meat. To quote Gandhi, be enough for everyone's need, but not for everyone's greed. And by mid-century Africa will have five times Europe's population. Moreover, if families in Africa remain large, then that constant population could double again by 2100 to 4 billion. Nigeria alone would then have as big a population as Europe and North America combined. Well, optimists say that every extra mouth brings two hands and a brain, but the geopolitical stresses are very worrying. Those in poor countries now know via the internet what they're missing. is easier. Moreover, the advent of robots and reshoring of manufacturing means that these still poor countries can't grow their economies by offering cheap skilled labor, as the Asian tiger states did. This is a portent for disaffection and stability, instability. Multiple mega versions of the tragic boat people crossing the Mediterranean today. So I think wealthy nations, especially those in Europe, should urgently promote growing prosperity in Africa and not just for altruistic reasons. And another thing, if humanity's collective impact on land use pushes too hard, the result of ecological shock could cause mass extinctions We've been destroying the book of life before we've read it. Already, there's more biomass in chickens and turkeys than in all the world's wild birds. And the biomass in humans, cows, and domestic animals is 20 times that in wild mammals. Biodiversity is crucial for human well-being. But of course, for many environmentalists, preserving it is of value in its own right. To quote the great ecologist, E.O. Wilson, mass extinction is the sin that future generations will least forgive us for. So the world's getting more crowded. And the second firm prediction, it'll gradually get warmer. In contrast to population issues, climate change is certainly not under-discussed, though it is under-responded to. In the fifth IPCC report, as everyone knows, presents a spread of projections for different assumptions about Future rate of fossil fuel use, etc. And it's still unclear how much CO2 itself in its effects is amplified by water vapor, etc. The science is uncertain too. But despite these uncertainties, I think most people would agree that under business as usual scenarios, we can't rule out later in this century really catastrophic warming and tipping points triggering long term trends like the melting of Greenland's ice. But even those who accept that statement have diverse views on the policy response. That's because they have different economics and ethics, in particular, on how much obligation they should feel towards future generations. The Dutch campaigner, Born Lomberg, convened a so-called Copenhagen consensus, and he downplays the importance of dealing with climate change compared to shorter-term ways of helping the world's poor. But that's because he applies a standard discount rate, which means that he writes off anything beyond 2050. Whereas other economists would argue that we should pay an insurance premium now to protect future generations against the worst case scenario. We shouldn't discriminate on grounds of date of birth in optimizing people's life chances. But politicians won't gain much resonance by advocating unwelcome lifestyle changes or a high carbon tax, when the benefits are mainly to distant parts of the world and far in the future. But I discuss in my book the one win-win roadmap to a low-carbon future, which is that nations should accelerate R&D into all forms of low-carbon energy generation and into other technologies where we need parallel progress batteries, compressed air pump storage, and smart grids. Because the faster these clean energies advance, the faster their costs will come down. So that, for instance, India will be able to leapfrog directly to clean energy, rather than replacing the smoky stoves burning wood and dung in homes today with coal-fired power stations, which they would do otherwise. And I won't go into the um, different options, but I think it's important that we in the UK can do a lot here because we are only 2% of the world's emissions though so Following the climate change act we will only have a 2% difference But we are more than 2% of the world's expertise in engineering. So if we prioritize clean energy um, R&D we can make a far more than 2% difference to the world. So that is something that we should prioritize Let's now turn to other technologies We should be evangelists for these new technologies, not Luddites, because without them, the world couldn't provide the food and sustainable energy for the expanding population. But many are anxious that some technologies are advancing so fast that we can't properly cope with them. And we have a bumpy ride through this century. Advances in microbiology, diagnostics, vaccines, and antibiotics. prospects of containing pandemics. But we have to worry about the safety of those experiments and the dissemination of dangerous knowledge. For instance in 2012 two groups, one in Holland and one in the US, showed it was surprisingly easy to make the flu virus both more virulent and more transmissible. And the new gene editing technique CRISPR-Cas9 is hugely promising but there are already ethical concerns about the Chinese experiments on human embryos, for instance, and about so called gene drive, where you make species extinct. Mosquitoes may be OK, grey squirrel, not so obviously OK. Well, governments will surely adopt a stringent and precautionary attitude to biotech, but I would worry that whatever regulations are enforced or imposed on prudential or ethical grounds can't be enforced worldwide any more than the drug laws can, or the tax laws can. I worry that whatever can be done will be done by someone, somewhere. And that's a nightmare, because whereas an atom bomb can't be built without conspicuous (coughs) special facilities, biotech involves small-scale dual-use equipment. And we know all too well that technical expertise doesn't guarantee balanced rationality. The global village will have its village idiots, but they now have global range. And the rising empowerment of these tech-savvy groups by bio and cyber technology will pose an intractable challenge to governments and aggravate the tension between freedom, privacy and security. These concerns are fairly near term within 10 or 15 years. But what about another transformative te- technology, robotics and AI? DeepMind's Go Zero famously achieved world championship level in the games of Go and chess in just a few hours. Given just the rules, it played against itself, but it worked so fast it played several games per second. And already AI can cope better than humans with complex, fast-changing networks, traffic flow or electric grids, for instance. And it could enable the Chinese to gather and process all the information needed to run an efficient planned economy of a kind that Marx could only have dreamt of. Computers learn to translate by reading millions of pages of multilingual text. EU documents, for instance, their boredom threshold is (coughs) infinite. And the implications of our society are already ambivalent. If we are sentenced to a term in prison, recommended for surgery, or even given a poor credit rating, we'd expect the reasons to be accessible to us and contestable by us. If such decisions were delegated to an algorithm, we'd be entitled to feel uneasy, even if presented with compelling evidence that, on average, the machines make better decisions than the humans they've usurped. And there may be other privacy concerns. Are you happy if a random stranger near you in a restaurant can, via facial recognition, identify you and invade your privacy? or if fake videos become so convincing that visual evidence can no longer be trusted. And the arms race between cyber criminals and those trying to defend against them will become still more expensive and vexatious when drones, driverless cars, etc., proliferate. The shifts in the nature of work have been addressed in several excellent books by economists and social scientists, including Jeff. Clearly, machines will take over lots of manufacturing jobs. They can supplement, if not replace, many white-collar jobs, legal work accountancy, computer coding, medical diagnostics, even surgery. In contrast, some skilled service sector jobs, plumbing and gardening, for instance, are so non-routine that they would be among the hardest jobs to automate. The digital revolution, generates enormous wealth for innovators and global companies, but preserving a healthy society will surely require redistribution of that wealth. Indeed it surely offers an opportunity for governments to vastly enhance the number and status of those who care for the old, the young and the sick. There are currently far too few and they are poorly paid, inadequately esteemed and insecure in their positions. If those who now work in call centers or Amazon warehouses can shift to that sort of job, it's surely far better in all respects. I can see this happening in Scandinavia, but I'm rather more pessimistic about this country. What about the long-term prospects of AI? There's a lot of hype, but some people um, are skeptical. I mean, for instance, uh, Rodney Brooks, the inventor of the uh, Roomba vacuum cleaner, and the Baxter robots, he thinks that for many decades we'd be less concerned about artificial intelligence than about real stupidity. But leading the hype-generating enthusiasts is Ray Carswell, who wrote a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, where he predicted that humans will transcend biology by merging with computers. In old-style spiritualist parlance, they will go over to the other side But he's worried that this nirvana may not happen in his lifetime. So he signed up with a company in Arizona that will freeze and store his body so that when immortality is on offer, he can be resurrected or his brain downloaded. And I was very surprised to find that three of my academic colleagues had gone in for this cryonics. Two have paid the full whack. Third has done the cut price of just wanting his head frozen. And I was glad that all these three are from Oxford and not from my university. And I told them that for my part, I'd rather end my days in an English churchyard than an American refrigerator. (laughs)
0: Mm.
1: Um, So looking to mid-century, you might expect two things. A better understanding of the combination of genes which determine key characteristics of humans and animals, and the ability to synthesize genomes that incorporate these features. This playing God on a kitchen table is something which I think will be available by mid-century, not as crazy as Kurzweil's vision. And this will mean that human mentality and physique will become malleable. And this raises huge ethical challenge, because There'll be a sort of secular intelligent design which will change us in the future far faster than the evolution ever could. And this is a game changer. When we admire the literature and artifacts that have survived from antiquity, we feel an affinity across a gulf of thousands of years with those ancient artists and their civilizations. But we can have zero confidence that the dominant intelligences a few centuries hence will have any emotional resonance with us, even though they may have some algorithmic understanding of how we behaved. Let me now briefly mention space, the technology I know most about. This is where robots will have a future, and where I'd argue that they will uh, worry us less. During this century, the whole solar system will be explored by swarms of miniaturized probes, far more advanced than those we've had already, and there'll be robotic fabricators up in space manufacturing large structures, solar engine collectors, huge telescopes, etc. Manned space flight will have no practical use, because the robots can do it all. And so, were I an American, I would only support NASA's unmanned program. And I certainly wouldn't support the Europeans having a manned program. But I would support the private companies, Elon Musk, SpaceX, and the rest of them. I think they should front all manned missions because they could take higher risks than a Western country can take with publicly funded civilians' lives. And there'll be many volunteers, some perhaps even accepting one-way tickets, driven by the same motives as early explorers, mountaineers, and the like. And such people, people with the mindset of Sir so ran Fiennes. fines, may have established bases on Mars, for instance. And Elon Musk himself says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. (laughs) And he's, I think, 47 years old, so he may make this. But don't ever expect mass emigration from Earth. No way in our solar system offers an environment even as clement as the South Pole. And here I disagree with Musk and my late colleague, Stephen Hawking. I think it's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from the Earth's problems. Dealing with climate change is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. There's no planet B for ordinary risk-averse people. But these crazy pioneers on Mars, they will be cosmically important. And this is why. They'd be ill-adapted to where they are. They'd be beyond the clutches of our regulators. And so they will use all the resources of genetic to adapt. They'll change faster than we will, within a few generations, could become a new species. Maybe even purely electronic rather than flesh and blood. And then they're near immortal and go into the blue yonder. And this is a topic for another science fiction talk, which I'm not going to give. But let me just conclude by focusing back closer to the here and now. My book emphasizes how our society is brittle, interconnected, and vulnerable. And I'd argue that we fret unduly about small risks air crashes, carcinogens in food, low radiation doses, etc. But we're in denial about some newly emergent threats, which could be globally devastating. Some of these are environmental, the pressures of a growing and more demanding population, others are the potential downsides of novel technology. And it's a wise mantra that the unfamiliar, is not the same as the improbable. And of course, most of the challenges are global, and we have to address the key issue of whether nations need to give up more sovereignty to new organizations along the lines of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the World Health Organization, etc. And what about scientists? Scientists have an obligation to promote beneficial applications of their work and to warn against the downsides. Universities can use their staff's expertise and their convening power to assess which scary scenarios can be dismissed as science fiction, but how best to avoid the serious ones. But politicians won't prioritize the global and long-term measures needed unless enough voters endorse such policies. And I know many people who've been science advisors to ministers, and they find it hard to get attention compared to the more urgent short-term issues. So scientists can enhance their leverage by involvement with NGOs, by blogging and journalism and by enlisting charismatic individuals and the media to amplify their voice. Let me give two recent instances of this. The papal encyclical Laudato Si' in 2015 had a worldwide influence in the lead-up to the Paris Climate Conference. The Pope got a standing ovation in the UN and of course, she's got a billion followers in Latin America, Africa, and East Asia. And there's no gain saying the Church's long-term vision and care about the world's poor. And here in the UK, I doubt that Michael Gove would have become exercised about non-degradable plastic in the ocean had it not been for the BBC's Blue Planet program fronted by our secular pope David Attenborough, especially the images of albatrosses regurgitating plastic for their young, rather than the longed for n- nutritious food. That's an iconic image, rather like the uh, polar bear on the melting ice flow. And so I think one can hope that public opinion can change. Indeed, there's a lovely saying by Margaret Mead that uh, only a few determined people could change the world, indeed nothing else ever has. And we know that happened in the case of slavery civil rights, gay rights, and all the rest of it. And similar campaigns are needed in order to take seriously these long-term concerns, to get people to think a century ahead. And it's encouraging to witness more activists among the young. And they, of course, can hope to live to the end of a century. And their campaigning is welcome. And their commitment does give some grounds for hope. So just to finish with, Spaceship Earth is hurtling through the void. Its passengers, all of us, are anxious and fractious. Their life support system is vulnerable to disruption and breakdowns. But there's too little planning, too little horizon scanning. We need to think globally. We need to think rationally. We need to think long term, empowered by 21st century science, but guided by values that science alone can't provide. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Martin, for that overview. And I hope you already have a sense of the, the extraordinary range of this book and the, the judgment and wisdom in it. Before I ask a couple of questions to Martin, just a, a, a quick sort of temperature check with, with you. So first of all, a quick show of hands. How many of you expect in the next 10 or 20 years to take up a diet with a substantial quantity of insects in it, <laughs> roughly? Very few. How many of you have already given up meat? Quite a few. How many of you already given up air travel? Not very many. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we will explore, I think, some mm. of the challenges of, of, of attending to uh, long-term threats. But perhaps just, just begin with where you were ending, which is what's happened to our, our time horizons as people living in media-saturated, internet-linked societies. Do you think we're finding it harder to attend to 50, 80, 100 years time, even mm. though life expectancy has broadly carried on upwards, than our equivalents a generation or two ago? Are mm. things getting worse?
1: I think they are. Um, it's partly because of the, uh, um, um, the fact that we have the urgency of social media and all, all that sort of thing. But I think it is partly that things are changing faster. I mean, uh, uh, I contrast things with the uh, medieval times when um, they thought the world would only last another 1,000 years, but they built cathedrals that would be finished in their lifetime. That may seem paradoxical, but it's not. It's not paradoxical, because they thought that their children and their grandchildren would, leave, would lead lives like theirs, and would see the cathedral finished. Whereas now, I think we can't predict at all what life would be like 25 or 50 years ahead. The smartphone and all that goes with it would have seemed pretty magical just 25 years ago. So we don't really know uh, what things will be like. And I think that is something which does prevent us from uh, um, taking seriously um, concerns about the longer term. Um, We we, we know that we can't predict exactly what our lives will be like then.
0: Uh, And you touch, in the book I've written in your talk, on a landscape of very unprecedented threats from a much more connected world. It could be epidemics. It could be cyber attacks. It could be new weapons. And that the implication is we will need new kinds of entities, state-like bodies to prevent those, to stop the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think we're likely to see a much more intrusive kind of exercise of state power to protect us from these threats? Or is there any scenario where that won't be needed?
1: I think it's inevitable this tension between security and privacy um, and freedom is going to get more acute. Um, And, of course, the other problem is that uh, um, the level of trust goes down when the people we deal with are not local but far away. And it's an interesting exercise for any economist here to ask what fraction of the economy we could do without if we all trusted each other. We could do without um, passwords, um, all these bollards being put up outside public buildings in London, airport security, and so many other things. And I think that's going to get worse and worse. And so I, th- I think uh, we're going to have to contend more with uh, um, security. Um, and, of course, I think cyber attacks are going to become um, endemic, especially if we do indeed have driverless cars. You know? So already you can change the software uh, of a dr- of a a car with the limited driver's capabilities and make every Mercedes veer left so off the road at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. on the um, M1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's going to be a, a sort of arms race there. And, and that's why I think disruption is serious. But if I can mention one other concern I have, it's that expectations are very high. Um, let's talk about just natural pandemics. In the 14th century, the Black Death killed half the population of some towns. Everyone else went on fatalistically. If there was some analogous plague now, I think you get social breakdown before the number of cases was 1% of the population, because that would overwhelm hospitals. And once people knew that there was treatment available, and if they weren't rich, they weren't getting it, then that'll be social breakdown. Likewise, if the electricity grid in cities or the Eastern United States breaks down. Then, had that happened 50 years ago, when well, the lights would have gone out. Whereas now, that's the least of one's worries. The whole society would completely collapse within a few days. So that's what I mean when I say things are getting more more vulnerable.
0: So a No Deal Brexit could be good preparation. For, <laughs> right, for vulnerable. Yeah, yes.
1: Stock up <laughs> on tin food.
0: Basically. Uh, and, and you mentioned the Margaret Mead quote about um, you know, small groups of determined yes. people uh, yeah. changing the world being the only yeah. thing that ever does. Yes. Um, a few days ago on the street out there, yep. thousands of school kids were marching on climate change, having gone on strike. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see the movements which are actually you know, grasping the true nature of, of, of the perils of the next century?
1: Um, well, that is an encouraging development, of course, um, and uh, I think. Uh, uh, vegetarianism is another encouraging development. Um, uh, if I was asked to predict two things by mid century, um, one is more vegetarians, but the other, which uh, hasn't been mentioned, is more euthanasia. Because I think what's going to happen is there'll be a bigger gap between the length of our natural lifespans and the length of our lifespans kept alive by the more advanced technology. So I think um, just as vegetarianism has now become common, I think euthanasia is going to become common too.
0: Can you just say a little bit about the geopolitics of this? Because the, the world is a very uneven uh, place. Mm-hmm. On Monday, we had in this room Roberto Mangabera Unger. One of the things he's worked on is the, the ways in which the old development route of manufacturing, export-led industries, which, as you, as you said earlier, worked for uh, East Asia, is now mm-hmm. longer an option for much of sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there isn't yet a really plausible alternative Where do you think will be the sort of the hotspots of the next fifty years, and where should uh, the world worry about, and where should a country like Britain, with an aid programme and so on, be most concerned about its interdependent interests?
1: Mm, Well, I mean, uh, I speak with without much knowledge, but I do think that the issue of Africa is going to be very serious. Um, The populations uh, are rising, and cities like Lagos will have populations of forty million by mid-century. And um, I, th- I think, um, uh, unless we somehow help to ensure that they can undergo some economic development, then there's little hope of a stable world, because they, they, they know what they're missing. Um, they may not have um, um, toilets and um, sanitation, but they do have mobile phones, and uh, they can travel. So I think um, the inequalities within um, between different nations are going to have to be reduced. Otherwise, I'd be very pessimistic about the future. So I think the countries of Europe um, will need to do what they can to help developers in Africa. I wouldn't venture to say what's the best way to do that, but I I think that's going to be crucial. And um, uh, I think also, as regards democracy, um, I I I mentioned that um, uh, there are many politicians, certainly in countries like, like this, um, who um, uh, do want to do the right thing in the long term. But uh, to quote what Mr. Jean-Paul Juncker said in a different context, they know what to do. They don't know how to get re-elected when they've done it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the problem. And so I think it's therefore very important um, for charismatic figures, be they David Attenborough, the pope, etc., to make a wide public care enough about these things, that they will support politicians who try to do the right thing.
0: So we need Jeremy Clarkson to convert and become an advocate of yes. new ways of living. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. We're going to open up now to comments and questions from all of you. has already covered an extraordinary <laughs> range of, uh, of topics. There will be uh, experts in the room. I hope some of the economists in the room uh, ask yeah. us about discount rates mm. Mm. <laughs> and the rather sort of technical side of how we yes. think about the future, yes. or maybe what's completely missing from this account which should be there. And perhaps if I take one of these right. mics and show you go that side, who would like to kick off here in the front row? Um, let start with you mm. and then yes, come to you. you yes. I'll switch it on, yeah.
2: Thank you, Lord Rees. Yeah. You said that in a few generations it might be possible for people who go to Mars to become an entirely different species.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: How?
1: Sorry. <laughs> how, how? how? How can they go to Mars? No. How
2: could they become a completely different species? Like, reproductively isolated from normal
1: Homo sapiens? Um, well, I mean, I was thinking that um, uh, it's, it's, it's not impossible that um, it, it, it be, we can um, uh, Understand the genome and uh, not just do single gene um, uh, changes, but understand what combination of genes is responsible for intelligence or physique, etc., and produce a synthesized genome with those properties. Um, does that? And also, some people talk about uh, cyborgs, where we can link our uh, our brains to some sort of electronic um, uh, enhanced memory or something like that. So it's just a development of, of, of those two kinds, which we can't rule out being drastically enhanced within 100 years or so. And my point is that we're going to want to regulate that sort of thing here on Earth. But those guys out on Mars, they are ill-adapted to the gravity, to the uh, atmosphere of Mars, etc. So, and they're away from the regulators. So they're the ones who will want to do this.
0: But but in any scenario, you would expect conscious, accelerated evolution of humanity because it's possible.
1: Yes, well, I think even on the Earth, we're going to have uh, evolution faster than Darwinian evolution, um, which takes about a million years for a species. Um, But of course, uh, uh, that that is counteracted now because um, um, we we keep people alive, et cetera. But I think the changes which may be possible in more or 200 years' time could be very drastic indeed.
0: Uh, and while the mic goes to questioner back there, would you like to paint a portrait of the human being of 2100? No. No, okay. <laughs>
1: no. <laughs> well, I don't think there'll be much change on, on the earth, but, but, uh, but I, I do think it will become possible um, to, uh, uh, to, to change the genome quite a lot, to um, well, today obvious case, you could make, make, give everyone dwarfism probably quite easily.
0: So wouldn't want Mars, to do that. grandchildren on Mars may look like that. Okay. Um, yeah. Hi, hi, uh, Lord Rees. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, you said in your talk it's very hard to predict the future, and yet you made lots of very compelling predictions in your talk. I just wondered if you wanted to comment on that paradox. Also, whilst I have the microphone, I wanted to ask if you thought there was any point to either optimism or pessimism in regard to our future.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I hope I said that I make these uh, predictions very tentatively. Um, uh, the things that I, we can say confidently are that the world is more crowded and warmer by 2050. Beyond that time, we don't know whether the world population will keep on going up or indeed go down. Some people say that, um So we, we don't really know which way that is going to go. Um, and as regards optimism and pessimism, I would describe myself as a um, uh, scientific optimist, but a political pessimist in that I think uh, uh, science is um, uh, allowing us to um, do things that could make a better world, but uh, the gap between the way the world could be and the way it actually is, is getting wider, not narrower. And that's a reason why I don't think that, uh, as say, Steven Pinker argues, we are making ethical progress, making progress in other ways. Oh, and another thing I should have said is when I talked about science, I should really have included um, Technology and engineering, because uh, that's what's more important. And uh, are some engineers here? I don't know. Yes. Well, um, they were like um, uh, a cartoon, um, which shows two beavers looking up at a big hydroelectric dam. One beaver says to the other, "I didn't actually build it, but it's based on my idea." <laughs> uh, and that shows the uh, balance between the uh, the idea which uh, we academic scientists produce and uh, making something that works and is useful, which is the big challenge. I can just
0: ask on the pessimism question. So if
1: I ask this audience, in the year
0: 2050, on balance, are you pessimistic about the standards of life, the quality of life of an average person in the UK, or are you optimistic? So first of all, the optimists who, on balance, think things will be better for most people in Britain in about 32 years' time? and those who are, on balance, pessimistic. (laughs) Okay, that's a roughly equal uh, split in the audience. Now, was it you had a question? Thank you. Thanks, Martin. That was great. Um, You mentioned um, a growing fragility in certain systems, like hospitals, potentially, with endemics or uh, other kind of chaotic events. What are ways that um, either the government or organizations or communities are already building I guess more resilience to those type of events, um, or building anti-fragility, as uh, Taleb calls mm, it, mm, uh, from what you've seen. Mm, mm. So, what would a um, hospital system look like with half a million beds <laughs> for the <that> plague <laughs> victims of yes, 2030? Yes.
1: Um, well, uh, uh, clearly, clearly, um, uh, lots of people are thinking long and hard about, I know the, the stability of the electric grid, for instance, and how to cope with emergencies at hospitals. They're doing this, but. But the fact is that um, the downside of the huge progress that's been made is that there is a gap between what we can do, um, if you focus resources, and what we could do for everyone. Um, I think it, and I think this is a serious issue, because if we think of the uh, effect of medicine, in the last 100 years, it's probably promoted equality. because. Getting rid of infant mortality and infectious diseases in the developing world has closed the gap, um, but future medicine may have the opposite effect. If it's very expensive um, techniques that can uh, enhance or save a minority of wealthy people, it may go the other way. And so, um, I think the problem is going to be to cope with a disaster which affects everyone.
0: What can, what can you do? Sorry. And do you see anyone building resilience into essential infrastructures and spending all that extra money to put in place extra capacity? Mm, mm,
1: mm. Well, I, I think it is, it is being done. I mean, I think in general, um, in, in a country like this, um, I, I think we should uh, um, uh, accept a sort of higher, higher tax rate so that we can do a better job with our infrastructure and our social services. We can do better. But I think um, it will never be possible to completely eliminate these risks and these inequalities. But, but clearly we do have to do something uh, about them and also uh, do this with the minimum encroachment on, uh, on liberty and privacy.
0: So who else would like to ask a question? Do you all, all imagine yourself in 20 years' time looking back to this evening and wondering a question you wished you had asked, Martin, <laughs> uh, over there?
2: Thank you for the interesting uh, talk. Um,
0: It seems to me that um, our world so far has been kind of dominated by scarcity, scarcity of energy, scarcity of expertise. And so it's quite hard for us naturally to imagine a world where this scarcity no longer exists. And so wouldn't it be the case that if the cost of living was reduced in the way that we we hoped nuclear power would reduce that, if that actually does come true and there is an abundance of expertise and um, that AI promises, it, couldn't it be the case that that kind of is more than enough to counteract this growing population problem and other things like wars over oil, this sort of thing?
1: Yes. Well, w- w- one would hope so. One would hope that uh, uh, we could completely eliminate uh, uh, malnourishment and uh, things of that kind. We can do that. Um, but I think um, the question is how much inequality we're going to tolerate taking account that there are some highly valued things which are intrinsically scarce. For instance, uh, a nice beachfront property that can only be achieved by probably one person in 10,000 in the world. And we can't do anything about that. And so there's going to be inequalities uh, because of these positional goods which are intrinsically rare. Although I agree with you that we can make um, life better for most people um, by, uh, um, um, by advanced technology and efficient manufacturing. And, of course, if we look at what's happened um, to the average person in this country, um, real wages, I think, for um, blue-collar workers have not increased in the last 20 years, and their security and state has gone down. The only compensating thing is that um, uh, everyone has access now to the internet and social media and all that, and this is something for which there is, in economic jargon, a big consumer surplus in that um, it's of greater value than what people have to pay. I mean, for instance, I'd be prepared to pay more for Google than i pay to run my car. But in fact, I get my use of Google for nothing um, and uh, have to pay quite a lot to keep my car going. And so I think the only thing that's made life better for the average person is really the new technology of um, uh, of information, uh, technology, etc. And then in the second row just
0: here, I think you had a question, did you? Uh, it was World Happiness Day yesterday, and of course, oh. we do now know the more you use Facebook, the less happy you are. So that <laughs> consumer surplus is yeah, ambiguous yes, yes. sometimes.
2: Yes, yeah. So just building on um, some of the questions earlier, when we're looking at um, the way knowledge has outstripped wisdom uh, over time, and combining that with the declining attention span that is inherent in you know, the... the, the, the the ability to access information at speed. What does that do for our ability to think strategically about the solutions that we need to think about to address some of the problems
1: that you've raised? Um, well, I think the problems are getting more complicated. There's no doubt about that. And uh, uh, in principle, um, you know, computers can help by exploring all kinds of scenarios in a way that uh, we couldn't think through quickly uh, with our unaided brains. So, uh, in a way, we can uh, do more efficient planning now than we ever could in the past. But whether we will is a different matter, because that does require wisdom to prioritize long-term goals. And as you say, that's not guaranteed to uh, accompany um, advances in our
0: knowledge. And what was an example of an institution which is really wise in this sense? Um, <laughs>
1: Sorry. Well, uh, no, I, well, well, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, um, t- um, I think the university system. Uh, universities have, have uh, exist for centuries in many cases. And I think they are examples of uh, institutions which uh, have changed with the times and, uh, and remain valuable. So I would put them pretty high on the list. Okay. And, um, and, and I'm glad to know that in, uh, in these um, polls where they ask, who do you trust? then um, professors come out pretty high still, don't they? <laughs> um, and uh, the politicians, journalists, and the state agents come, come out near the bottom. And astronomers, presumably, are all uh, near the Well, I do There, uh,
0: in the stratosphere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, uh, there at the back, yeah. Yes, my question is related to the last one in terms mm-hmm. of stresses and shocks you talked of, mm-hmm. the brittle and the vulnerable. We're looking at uh, the question of economic, global imbalance and inequalities. Mm. In your experience, do you believe after four centuries of rampant capitalism and five industrial revolutions, can the current ideologies repair the damage you talked of earlier?
1: Um, Well, um, I'm going to be very, very diffident in answering that question, obviously. But I think um, uh, one thing I I would say which is relevant, is that um, uh, after four centuries of North Atlantic hegemony, then it's going to be um, uh, East Asia, where the world's intellectual and physical capital is going to be concentrated. So the answer um, to your question really depends on what happens there. And of course, the uh, the value systems and the political systems, there are different, the ones that have caused us the benefits and the uh, uh, problems that
0: you don't say very much in the book about what the ideologies of 50 or 80 years' time might be. No. Okay, question over there.
2: Yes, it took the cataclysm of World War II to set up institutions of world governance yeah. with all their um, weaknesses that we see, but mm. at least mm. they were there, and people yes. felt very strongly that there needed to be a change. Yes. Yes. Can we get to the governance that we need to deal with these global challenges without another cataclysm, mm. and w- mm. what would enable us to do yeah. that? Yes.
1: Well, I think that's indeed a very important question. I mean, I've I written you the answer, but I think we can campaign uh, for these international bodies. And we need them, I think, to, um, uh, to, to shift us all towards um, uh, cleaner energy and things like that and, and, and obviously to uh, reduce the risk of pandemics, etc. There's clearly more need. And I think the one thing that might pressure people is um, if the, the threat, although not of war, um, is of these global conglomerates taking over because they clearly are multinational and it's uh, obvious that we need to um, work on a scale larger than nation state, not just to tax them but to control what they do.
2: So I just um, wanted to see what your feelings were or thoughts, um, um, taking it back to ourselves, to the human, um, so actually in this point of massive changes that you've outlined brilliantly for us, Mm -hmm. um, how do you see the individual in the future, particularly in relationship to human relationships, and family, and love, and Mm -hmm. intimacy, and hope?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope they are the things which here on earth anyway uh, will not, not change and will constrain. And I should say that I'm uh, um, very out of sympathy with the idea that the robot will take over um, uh, looking after old people, for instance, and teaching. Um, The the, the wisest person in this country on these issues is uh, Margaret Bowden. I don't know how many people know Margaret Bowden or her books. Um, And she's very, very strong on on saying that it's sort of um, demeaning for an old person to be looked after just by a robot. You may want... um, uh, uh, a robot to help with some practical things, feeding you and things like that. But you need a real person, and um, uh, and for a kid, it's not the same to have a story read to you by a robot as have it read by a real human being who can sort of sympathise with your emotions um, when it's a, an emotional story like Bambi being killed and, and things like that. Um, and um, and so I think we've got to make make it clear that there are many things where the um, Robots can't properly take over. And I think the good news is that um, the answer to um, uh, the uh, fact that robots are taking over manufacturing jobs uh, is to make sure that there are jobs where the people now working in these horrible Amazon warehouses, places like that, can be employed um, as assistants in schools or in hospitals and places like that. It just needs a redeployment and a willingness to, um, to tax the um, the companies sufficiently to um, support these posts.
0: But just p- pursuing the link between these very big issues and the personal and the everyday, what, what's your advice to the people in this room about what habits of mind to cultivate, or indeed how to live your life in ways which do attend to these really big, important threats on the horizon, but don't so swamp you that you're in a state of perpetual anxiety? Yes. That many people could read your book
1: and become deeply anxious. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, I think um, uh, people, um, when they are voting, or when they're campaigning, uh, they should prioritize these issues perhaps over some which do exercise them too much. Um, but I think in everyday life, um, I uh, personally, perhaps it's because I'm um, a bit conservative, um, think that we shouldn't expect rapid changes, and um, uh, it's not at all clear they'd lead to greater contentment. And I should say that uh, uh, I read this um, report that um, uh, if you ask people um, how happy they are, then the peak is um, between um, 20 and 24, or between 70 and 74, so I'm very happy about <laughs> that. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but of course, if you ask people, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole, then you get a different answer, because the people who are, have of kids and things, they're a bit flustered all the time yeah. for their life as a whole. So it's a bit bogus to say that it's the younger and the older are happier.
0: Yeah, but the forties are not a good decade, usually, <laughs> according to that research. Right, so a yes, couple, yes. we've got time for a couple more brief questions yes, yes. here, here, and here. Yeah.
2: Thank you,
1: Martin, for a stimulating talk yet again. Mm. Oh, that's
0: Dougal, mm. is
2: it? Hi, Dougal.
1: I've heard this once
2: before. But yeah. the, 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 the key question is, uh, in Mozambique, there have been t- terrible floods.
0: The science community was able to forecast those floods, but the political process didn't respond to those forecasts. Do you think we've got the mechanisms for advising politicians
2: about science in working both regionally, nationally, and internationally?
1: Right. Um, I, th- I think clear- clearly we don't. Um, we, we need, we need a, a better system and of course we need, since you've mentioned science education, we need uh, a better informed public because so many of the issues which uh, uh, we need to address as citizens have a scientific dimension. So people have to have a feel for science and numbers so they can't be bamboozled. But I'm not one of these people who bemoans everyone's ignorance of science. I'm very gratified how many people are interested in um, uh, Remote things like um, dinosaurs and things like that, completely uh, um, irrelevant to everyday li- day life. Um, and it's just as bad if people are ignorant of their nation's history or uh, of um, uh, anything else. the, yeah, the way involved.
0: people's ignorance of everything, really, don't you?
1: Well, well, I do, I, I say that um, science is not particularly yeah. a concern. Yeah. Some people say science is a special problem, whereas I would worry just as much about the fact that so few people know their nation's history, can speak a second language, and things like that. Yeah.
0: At the, the very back there, yeah. Uh, thank you.
2: Uh, allegedly, the uh, DNA kits were the most uh, requested Christmas present yeah. in America this yes. Christmas, mm-hmm. just gone. Uh, have you got any views as to why?
1: Um, well, it's fascinating, but of course, uh, this is a danger because biohacking becomes a sort of game, etc. cetera. And uh, uh, the gap between that sort of thing and doing something dangerous is going to get narrower as the uh, techniques of genetic modification get more advanced. So, so I, I do think it's a, it's a worry uh, how this might develop. Did, did anyone in this room
0: buy a CRISPR kit on Amazon I think they were $150, weren't they, at Christmas? Really? Nobody?
1: No.
0: no, no. <laughs> None of you are doing DIY yeah, biohacking yeah, yeah, yeah. at
1: home. Yeah. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, yes. Um, thank you very much for your talk this evening. Uh, couple of first one, uh, very briefly linked, so I think, uh, to the previous question about Mozambique. Uh, do you believe that there are certain and particularly scientific problems which are insoluble under democratic political processes uh, and my principal question uh, is, I will probably live into the second half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to teaching my children how to fight for me in the resource walls yes. uh, to come. <laughs> uh, obviously, the future gets very foggy apart from certain things about crowding and warming, yes, yes. and it's all unknown unknowns. Yeah, now, of yeah. course, Over the course of your life and career, you have witnessed many unknown unknowns become known knowns. Mm. So I was wondering perhaps if there was one positive and one negative uh, feature of the world at the moment that if you could look back at the beginning of your career, you would have thought was utterly impossible and unpredictable.
1: Mm. Well, I think um, uh, a smartphone is the most amazing thing, which uh, the fact that uh, we all communicate with anyone and have access to the world's information. I think that is the most astonishing thing that's happened in, 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 in my lifetime. Um, and that's why uh, I think if we want to think beyond 2050, we should keep our minds open or at least ajar to what may now seems complete science fiction. We don't, we, we don't know. But um, if I can um, uh, give a slightly oblique answer too, I mean, as a scientist, are there problems we never solve? Uh, there may be some things which are beyond the human brain which just as um, a monkey can't understand quantum mechanics, there may be some aspects of reality which are beyond the human brain. Um, here, perhaps, perhaps we will be helped by um, artificial intelligence, which can do calculations much faster. Let's take one example. I mean, our, our uh, theoretical physics work on called string theory, which is a fundamental theory which they think, if it's right, will link together gravity and the forces of the micro world. And um, uh, it may be completely wrong. But if it's right, it's very, very complicated. It involves lots of possible structures in 11 dimensions, et cetera. And that's just the kind of problem which something like a a souped-up AlphaGo computer might be able to calculate, uh, even if uh, it's beyond a human being in their lifetime to calculate it. So I think there are problems where we can um, uh, get the answer by the help of AI but we will never get the sort of uh, aha insight experience which we get when we actually understand a solution.
0: A, a very final question, yeah. Actually, building on what you said. Uh, another former Nestor board member a few years ago wrote a book called The 10 Billion, which was also turned into a, a play, which looked at many of the very dangerous ah. ecological trends of yes, the century. Yes, yes. And in it, he is asked, what should you teach your children? to be ready for the world of the mid-21st century, yes, yes. and uh, the answer is teach them how to fire a gun well, for the resource, coming resources. Now, what would you say to that dark, pessimistic view of the
1: yes. world ahead? Um, well, let's hope he's not right, but it's, uh, <laughs> um, I, mean, uh, I mean, I, I agree with a gentleman here who says that uh, uh, we can provide um, enough manufactured goods and food for everyone uh, using the technology we have, um, but, uh, but nonetheless, um, I think there'll be not only uh, disruptions caused by dissident groups and weirdos within each country, but also if we don't reduce inequalities between different regions, we're going to have uh, um, continuing uh, instability there. So um, I think he's, this is Mr. Emmett. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Uh, and so uh, let's hope he's wrong, but I fear he may not be. Well, look, we've run out of time, mm. and I hope that the main
0: message of this book is actually some of these things are to a degree open to choice. They Mm. are not Mm. fate or destiny. They are shaped by our own individual capabilities Mm. and our collective ones. Uh, Do read the book. Um, Do also listen to our new podcast series, Future Curious, which will include uh, uh, Martin Rees and uh, many others uh, on it. And uh, thank you all for coming on this day when we have no idea where our nation will be in two weeks' time. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you.
1: Thank you so you, you, you can escape now. <laughs>